When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, the 714th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I am recording today's episode during the long, seemingly never-ending round of votes for the Speaker of the House. We are currently in round five. Voting in round five just started. Round four just ended. After three rounds yesterday, they took a break. They adjourned for the day. 
Apparently, they had meetings last night that were quite obviously unproductive. And so they're back today. There was a rumor that they were going to adjourn right at noon without doing any rounds of votes so that they could continue negotiating and trying to manipulate things the way they wanted so that Kevin McCarthy would remain speaker. But instead, they have gone to the floor and now they are in the second round of voting for today. So the three rounds of voting yesterday, 18, I believe Republicans voted against McCarthy, second round, 19, third round, 20. And then the fourth round this morning became 21 because the Ukrainian Congresswoman representing Indiana, Victoria Sparts, voted present rather than casting a vote in either direction. But she is as you might expect, a massive supporter of the Ukrainian war and thinks that we should even do more to support Ukraine in this ridiculous effort to ostensibly protect Ukraine's sovereign borders that don't really exist anymore. That's just all Russia now. And what else are we doing over there? No one has any idea. We're just laundering money and moving weapons around the world to wherever the regime wants them. She's all for that. For whatever reason, she did not cast her vote in the fourth round for Kevin McCarthy. So the only surprise of the day so far has been that rather than Jim Jordan being the never McCarthy candidate, now it's Byron Donalds. And Byron Donalds seems like a decent choice. He actually did vote for McCarthy in the first round yesterday But by and large, the man has seemed fairly America first. He did object to the certification of electors on January 6th, 2021, which is one of my qualifications for just about anything. Uh, Interesting aspect of what we're seeing right now of the 20 Republicans who have voted against Kevin McCarthy, not counting Sparts, who voted present, all of them, except for Chip Roy were either not in Congress last term or objected to the certification of electors. So every one of the 20 who was in Congress with the opportunity to object did object. And then we have, I think, four or five brand new members who are voting against McCarthy. The only one of those people who has voted against McCarthy and voted to certify the electors is Chip Roy. Now, Chip Roy is the man who gave the nomination speech for Byron Donalds this morning, and it was a great speech. Chip Roy is a fantastic orator. I want to believe he is fully authentic in his priorities. The only thing that stops me from believing that is the fact that he voted to certify electors in 2021. So we'll see how that goes. I may pop back in and out to join Brian Cancon and John Harold Patel Patriot on Badlands Media to discuss the votes happening today. So if you're thinking, how did he record his podcast while he was also on Badlands? That's how I just left. Now I'm doing this. Then I might go back and do that. Then I might come back and do this. But in the meantime, we have two Twitter files updates from yesterday And the interesting thing about this round of Twitter files is that they don't seem to be grabbing a lot of attention. 
And you can imagine that's at least in part to what's happening in the House and then partly attributable to the collapse of DeMar Hamlin on the field the other night in the Monday night football game. Now, there's not much new information to share about that, but there's some interesting speculation, and I'm not sure that it's entirely dead on. I checked with a fairly renowned doctor who I'm in contact with who does not accept this theory and still does believe that Comocio Cortis is the most likely explanation for what happened on Monday night, but I'm going to share it with you nonetheless. This is a tweet from a man named Haitham Ahmed, who has MD and MPH, that's medical doctor and masters of public health on Twitter. He wrote, we just learned Hamlin was resuscitated twice, and that was reported broadly today all over media. So he was resuscitated twice, once on the field with ROSC and again in the hospital. As a cardiologist, this makes commotio cortis less likely. If the impact caused an arrhythmia and rhythm was restored, he wouldn't arrest again an hour later, full evaluation needed. And that's interesting. What he's saying is the heart was stopped. It was restarted on the field and then it stopped and was restarted again later, essentially. And he's saying if it was commotio cortis, that would have stopped it once. And then upon the restart, it would have basically been like hitting a reset button. And then his heart would have just been working at that point. So his speculation based on his experience as a cardiologist leads him to believe that it was not commotio cortis. Now, again, whether or not it was, it could still have been affected, compounded, complicated by taking the vaccine. If indeed he is vaccinated, which is a likely assumption because he's an NFL player and they had a vaccine mandate. It's possible that he did not take the vaccine. We don't know, but the assumption is he did. So we're roughly in the same position. Was it commotio cordis? Yes or no. Either way, it could still have been affected by his vaccination status and whether or not that COVID vaccination, not a vaccine, could have given him some sort of undiagnosed and asymptomatic myocarditis or other heart-related issue. So we're still in that wait-and-see period. And speaking of the vaccine that is not a vaccine, this is from Rasmussen Reports on Monday. Died suddenly? More than one in four think someone they know died from COVID-19 vaccines. Now that is astounding. Nearly half of Americans think COVID-19 vaccines may be to blame for many unexplained deaths, and more than a quarter say someone they know could be among the victims. The latest Rasmussen Reports National Telephone and Online Survey finds that 49% of American adults believe it is likely that side effects of COVID-19 vaccines have caused a significant number of unexplained deaths, including 28% who think it's very likely. 37% don't say a significant number of deaths have been caused by vaccine side effects, including 17% who believe it's not likely at all. Another 14% are not sure. Now, again, we've discussed this many times on the podcast. You can imagine 
when these questions are asked, we know what the social incentives are behind the answers that people give. It's not something you're supposed to say in public. You're not supposed to say that vaccines are killing people. You're just supposed to say, no, they're not. There's no way that's happening. That's impossible. Trust the doctors. Trust the science. They would never make a mistake like this. They would never lie to people like us because we're just like them. And people like them would never lie to other people like them. And of course, other people like them are people like us because we're all smart. We're all experts in our own way. And those smart people, they would never, ever lie to smart people like us. And smart people like us would know if they were lying. But we have almost half the country, 49%, going against that and saying that they believe it is likely that the vaccine, which is not a vaccine, has caused significant numbers of unexplained deaths. Half the country. And again, that's just according to polls. This is just what people are willing to tell a pollster. You can believe it's likely a lot higher than that. And that 14% who says they're not sure. Well, if you're not sure about that, you kind of are sure about that because it's either no, there's no way that's happening or eh, maybe it is happening. And considering how long this narrative has been around, how long this discussion has been happening, almost everyone has some sort of position on this. But let's accept their number as half. We were told that 70%, 80% of America had chosen to get vaccinated. We know it's only about 5% of the small children. Parents did not want to put their children through that. A lot of people stopped taking it after the first round. They were willing to do the first round and participate so they could, they imagined, continue to travel, continue to work, protect a relative who was immunocompromised. Maybe they believed that they were protecting other people. Everybody had their justifications for taking that first round. They thought after that first round, okay, I've done what you wanted me to do. I did what I believe is the right thing. The thing the television told me was the right thing. The thing I was told I had to do to keep my job. The thing I was told I had to do to protect grandma. The thing I was told I had to do to keep traveling. I did that thing. Now you can't tell me to do another thing. A lot of people who got the first round had that reaction and stopped getting them. And they moved from pro-vaccine to vaccine hesitant. You have to be vaccine hesitant to some degree, to say, I don't want to keep getting that. At some point, you have decided that the central narrative's version of the science is no longer acceptable to you, and you are going to think independently and make your own independent choice, and you stop going along with it. So a big chunk of people who got vaccinated initially moved to that position. This position tells us there's a whole lot more people than that. If 49% of Americans believe it is likely that side effects of COVID-19 vaccines have caused a significant number of unexplained deaths, those people are probably even beyond being vaccine hesitant. They are now anti-COVID vaccine. That is the only rational position to take if you believe 
that COVID-19 vaccine side effects have caused a significant number of deaths. The signal here is that this is a massive shift in the perception of the vaccine narrative. Half the country, at least, is now opposed to these vaccines in an important way, in the way that they understand this COVID-19 vaccine, which is not a vaccine, actually might be killing people. That's half the country who understands the COVID-19 vaccine might be killing people. 28% of adults say they personally know someone whose death they think may have been caused by side effects of COVID-19 vaccines, while 61% don't and another 10% are not sure. The documentary Died Suddenly has been criticized as promoting debunked anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, but has been seen by some 15 million people. Think about what that means. 15 million people. If 15 million people go see any movie in one weekend in America, that movie is number one at the box office, right? Let's say 15 bucks a ticket, 15 million people. That's $225 million at the box office that weekend. That's what we are told, right? Is a massive, extraordinary number of people going and seeing a movie. Yes, some movies get that high, but not many. $225 million rolling in over the life of a movie would be a success almost all the time, unless it was some, you know, massive blockbuster thing that cost just more money than you could ever imagine. Now, forget about the money, obviously. This is about the number of people who have actually seen the movie. 15 million people seeing that movie, that's extraordinary. 48% of Americans believe there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines, while 37% think people who worry about vaccine safety are spreading conspiracy theories. Another 15% are not sure. And again, that's pretty interesting. Of the people polled, just over a third now believe that the discussions about the harms caused by the COVID-19 vaccines are conspiracy theories. That's all they have left. And as I mentioned above, you got the 49% and the 14% of the people not sure that is 63%. 37% of America still thinks it's a conspiracy theory to discuss that. Think of those numbers together. That is a pretty clear picture about who's going which way. 71% say they have received a COVID-19 vaccination, while 26% have not. Concerns about vaccine safety are much higher among the unvaccinated, obviously, because we're not the ones who injected ourselves with a potentially deadly substance. 77% of adults who have not gotten COVID-19 vaccinations believe it's at least somewhat likely that side effects of COVID-19 vaccines have caused a significant number of unexplained deaths. And naturally, this makes sense. If you are unvaccinated, it's because you pay attention to stuff like this and you're more likely to have read about and learned about and accepted the fact that the COVID-19 vaccines really are damaging millions and millions and millions of people. 
among those who have gotten the vaccine, just 38% consider unexplained deaths from the vaccine at least somewhat likely. Now, imagine being one of those 38%. You are admitting that the COVID-19 vaccine has likely been a contributing factor to a massive rise in unexplained deaths, and you've taken it. Those people are vaccine regretful and may not ever take another vaccine in their lives, and good for them. Similarly, while 45% of those who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19 think someone they know personally might have died from vaccine side effects, only 22% of vaccinated adults think so. And there's a lot in this article. I suggest you check it out if you want to hear more. I'm just going to share one last part of this. More Democrats, 85%, than Republicans, 63%, or those not affiliated with either party, 64%, have been vaccinated against COVID-19. More Republicans than Democrats, 60% to 44%, or the unaffiliated, 43%, think there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. 44% of Democrats now understand that there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines, which are not vaccines. However, there is less political difference in the number who suspect someone they know might have died from vaccine side effects. 33% of Democrats and 26% of both Republicans and the unaffiliated. 33% of Democrats, one third of Democrats suspect someone they know might have died as a result of COVID-19 vaccine, not a vaccine, side effects. A third of Democrats now think that. That is astounding because it is Their party that pushed the vaccines and pushed the mandates and pushed the masks and pushed COVID and is still pushing COVID. Joe Biden's out there walking around with a mask. There was some member of the Democrat Communist Party in Congress today wearing a mask while surrounded by and talking to his unmasked colleagues. Who do these people think they're protecting? Masks don't work. And he's still pretending my mask protects you and your mask protects me, except you're not actually wearing masks. So my mask protects me too, even though there's not a single study anywhere in the world that shows it does. Now, changing subjects without a segue, Matt Taibbi released two new drops of the Twitter files yesterday in the afternoon. And so we will go through them. This is the first one. The Twitter files, how Twitter let the intelligence community in. Now, my first impression from that title is, well, that's kind of funny because all I think is when was the intelligence community not in Twitter? Was there even a single day when the intelligence community was not involved in Twitter, and I'm not sure there was, maybe someday we'll know for sure. In August 2017, when Facebook decided to suspend 300 accounts with suspected Russian origin, Twitter wasn't worried. Its leaders were sure they didn't have a Russia problem. And Taibi includes a couple of screenshots and quotes 
from email communications. Twitter communicates, we did not see a big correlation, no larger patterns. Facebook may take action on hundreds of accounts, and we may take action on about 25. Keep the focus on Facebook. Twitter was so sure they had no Russia problem. Execs agreed the best PR strategy was to say nothing on record and quietly hurl reporters at Facebook. Twitter is not the focus of inquiry into Russian election meddling right now. The spotlight is on Facebook, wrote public policy vice president Colin Crowell in an email. In September 2017, after a cursory review, Twitter informed the Senate it suspended 22 possible Russian accounts and 179 others with possible links to those accounts amid a larger set of roughly 2,700 suspects manually examined. Receiving these meager results, a furious Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee and also a member of the Gang of Eight, by the way, held an immediate press conference to denounce Twitter's report as frankly inadequate on every level. So the senator wanted from Twitter evidence that he could take to the public, that he could use for politics, that Russia was in fact interfering, even though Twitter had no proof of that. Twitter's Sean Edgett emailed Colin Crowell, Mark Warner's press release, And Crowell wrote back hashtag irony the day after Warner's press conference, after receiving the email from Warner's reelection campaign asking for five dollars or whatever you can spare. And Sean Edgett replied, LOL, keep producing material after meeting with congressional leaders. Crowell wrote Warner has political incentive to keep this issue at the top of the news, maintain pressure on us and the rest of industry to keep producing material for them. So the people who are busy blaming everything on Russia, they're saying Russia hacked the election. Russia colluded with Donald Trump. They're getting into the Mueller stuff at this point. Trump, Russia, Trump, Russia, Trump, Russia. And the senator from Virginia, who is on the Intelligence Committee, the ranking Democrat at the time wants information produced that will support the narrative he's been repeating in public without any evidence. So here's the email because this Warner discussion is interesting. This is from Colin Crowell to Jack Dorsey, September 29th, 2017. He writes, here's a little more background and presents a bullet-pointed list. Yes, only Senator Warner, the ranking Democrat on Senate Intel, commented. The Intel Committee Chairman Burr, Republican from North Carolina, declined comment and no other senators commented. Warner has been most vocal about the need for public hearings with social media companies and took Facebook to task a couple of weeks back, leading them to ultimately agree to disclose the ads they found associated with alleged Russian interference. Dynamic during our two-hour closed-door meeting with Senate staff investigators was more cordial and less contentious than senators' comments reflected. We got some tough questions, but we were working in collaborative spirit and pledged to circle back with more information based on their queries. On the House side, Intel Committee ranking Democrat Adam Schiff was the only one who commented. 
his statement more balanced, thanking us for cooperation and looking forward to ongoing work together. But he also said we had to do more to investigate what happened in 2016 and said we had, quote, significant forensic work to do to understand the depth and breadth of Russian activity during the campaign. We knew going in that our biggest vulnerability was that our teams are addressing and solving the malicious bot and misinformation problems of 2017 and beyond. But Warner and the Intel committees are singularly focused on what transpired in 2016, and we simply don't have a lot of data or conclusions to share with them on that front currently. Warner has political incentive to keep this issue at top of news, maintain pressure on us and rest of industry to keep producing material for them and generate interest for the November 1st hearing that is planned. Democrats also taking cues from Hillary Clinton, who in her What Happened book tour is pointedly talking about the role of Russian propaganda and dirty tricks that were pushed through social media had in her demise. She has specifically called out Facebook and quote unquote other social media for not doing enough to address state sponsored mischief in the election. We're also getting hurt by third party academics and researchers who tap our API to pull together flawed reports painting the bot slash Russian troll problem as a significant presence on Twitter. They also claim to monitor these Russian networks on Twitter and then report on their activities. It was evident in the room with staff investigators that these researchers had already briefed the committees and asserted Twitter is a major problem. These studies are also cited in recent media stories. And so what you get from this email, you know, Taibbi only excerpted that little piece. Obviously, he did present the entire screenshot, the entire email, which is good. I don't think the keep producing material for them is the key focus in here. I'm interested in these bullet points about Russian interference, not necessarily Twitter's role. They wanted public hearings with the social media companies, Facebook specifically, to disclose the ads they found associated with alleged Russian interference. And you remember when they began scaling back their original story, the original story that Russia hacked the election and that the Trump campaign was colluding with Russia. They scaled that back to talking about Cambridge Analytica and Russian ads. That became the main story. These Russian ads that were seen by relatively few people constituted Russian interference and won the election for Donald Trump. And it sounds like they're not all that certain that really happened. And then, of course, it's about the Russian bot and troll farms, which Twitter can't really validate. This stuff came up through academics in universities using the Twitter API. That means that they are able to access part of Twitter and analyze the Twitter data. And they essentially came to their own conclusions. So these stories that were presented to the American public as the fallback position after people realized that Russia didn't hack the election and that Trump and Russia weren't actually colluding. These were the stories they went with, and these two sound like they're just not really true. Taking their cues from Hillary Clinton, Crowell added Dems were taking cues from Hillary Clinton, who that week had said, quote, it's time for Twitter to stop dragging its heels and live up to the fact that its platform is being used as a tool 
for cyber warfare. Well, Twitter being used for cyber warfare is absolutely true, just not in the way or in the direction that Hillary Clinton is talking about. In growing anxiety over its PR problems, Twitter formed a Russia task force to proactively self-investigate. The Russia task force started mainly with data shared from counterparts at Facebook centered around accounts supposedly tied to Russia's Internet Research Agency. But the search for Russia perfidy was a dud. And the excerpted email reads from Wednesday, October 11th, 2017. TLDR, which is too long, didn't read. It's basically like a summary statement. We have initial list of suspicious advertising content. A lot of benign content need to further investigate before we can draw a conclusion. Executive status updates, ads investigation, TLDR. Models built that produce lists of tweets found 8,000 around election content and a further 700 accounts with potential list of accounts with Russian links. Deeper analysis required before determining if connection between lists and Russia group will do manual reviews with legal and comms around next phase to align on approach and narrow down list to confirm connections and quantify. So still not the proof that Schiff and Warner and Hillary Clinton and others were looking for October 13th, 2017. No evidence of a coordinated approach. All of the accounts found seem to be lone wolf type activity, different timing, spend, targeting, and under $10,000 in ad spend. So that is not some massive Russian coordinated effort to produce ads that go wide or go viral in order to influence the election outcome in favor of Donald Trump. October 18th, 2017. First round of Russia investigation, 15 high-risk accounts, three of which have connections with Russia, although two are RT, and I imagine that means Russia Today, the Russia news source. October 20th, 2017, built new version of the model that is lower precision, but higher recall, which allows us to catch more items. We aren't seeing substantially more suspicious accounts. We expect to find about 20 with a small amount of spend. October 23rd, 2017. Finished with investigation. 2,500 full manual account reviews. We think this is exhaustive. 32 suspicious accounts and only 17 of those are connected with Russia. Only two of those have significant spend, one of which is Russia Today, remaining under $10,000 in spend. Twitter's search, finding only two significant accounts, one of which is Russia Today, was based on the same data that later inspired panic headlines like Russian influence reached 126 million through Facebook alone. The failure of the Russia task force to produce material worsened the company's PR crisis. In the weeks after Warner's presser, a torrent of stories sourced to the Intel Committee poured into the news, an example being Politico's October 13th article titled, Twitter deleted data potentially crucial to Russia probes. So this is coming from likely Democrats on one of the Intel Committees, either the Senate or the House. And 
it is likely either Mark Warner himself or, of course, the infamous leaker, Shifty Adam Schiff. Were Twitter a contractor for the FSB, they could not have built a more effective disinformation platform. Johns Hopkins professor and Intel committee, quote unquote, expert Thomas Ridd told Politico. So now you have an unnamed source inside the Intel committee and you have experts say, except the inside information from Twitter doesn't back up what the Intel committee member leaked to the media, nor what this expert has said. As Congress threatened costly legislation and Twitter was subject to more bad press fueled by the committees, the company changed its tune about the smallness of its Russia problem. And it's worth taking note of considering how much we have heard about legislation regarding Section 230. It sounds like all that talk about legislation is not the members of Congress and the Senate actually being concerned about big tech censorship. They're using it as leverage to make the tech companies do what they want and support their narratives. Hi, guys, just passing along for awareness the write up here from The Washington Post today on potential legislation or new FEC regulations that may affect our political advertising, wrote Crowell. In Washington, weeks after the first briefing, Twitter leaders were told by Senate staff that, quote, Senator Warner feels like tech industry was in denial for months, added an Intel staffer. Big interest in Politico article about deleted accounts. Twitter pledged to work with them on their desire to legislate. Knowing that our ads and product changes are an effort to anticipate congressional oversight, I wanted to share some relevant highlights of the legislation Senators Warner, Klobuchar, and McCain will be introducing, wrote Policy Director Carlos Mangi soon after. The committee appears to have leaked. Even as Twitter prepared to change its ad policy and remove RT and Sputnik to placate Washington, Congress turned the heat up more, apparently leaking the larger base list of 2,700 accounts. And Taibbi includes an email from Carlos Mangi to Colin Crowell, Lauren Culbertson, Yoel Roth, and Sean Edgett. This is November 22nd, 2017. He writes, will do on House Intel. The committee appears to have leaked the account names based on reporting of experts combing through the list and revealing new info like on Brexit. And that's very interesting. Lots of leaking going on. And Twitter has basically proposed to take down RT and Sputnik Russian news sources in order to placate the politicians, because now they are worried about threats from those same politicians that there might be legislation passed that will harm Twitter. So the leverage is working a little bit. And Twitter is basically saying, all right, it's okay. We don't need news from Russians on our site. Russians don't have anything to contribute. Hey, guys, that's kind of racist, kind of bigoted. You know what I mean? Not that Russians are a race, but kind of the same principle, you know? It's strange that none of these Democrats and John McCain ever asked for 
Chinese news sites to be censored. I've never heard anything about that. Maybe we'll find out that they have, maybe, or maybe they will still in the future. Reporters from all over started to call Twitter about Russia links. BuzzFeed, working with the University of Sheffield, claimed to find a new network on Twitter that had, quote, close connections to Russian linked bot accounts. Oh, no. It will only embolden them. Twitter internally did not want to endorse the BuzzFeed and Sheffield findings. Senate Intel Committee is asking possible to whip something together. Still, when the BuzzFeed piece came out, the Senate asked for a write up of what happened. Twitter was soon apologizing for the same accounts they'd initially told the Senate were not a problem. Reporters now know this is a model that works. This cycle threatened legislation wedded to scare headlines pushed by congressional and Intel sources followed by Twitter caving to moderation asks would later be formalized in partnerships with federal law enforcement. Okay. So this is the model that works. This is how they extract concessions from Twitter and get things to the place where they want them so that they can push their political narrative and substantiate it. This is the cycle. Threaten legislation, push scare headlines from mainstream media, leaked from congressional and intel sources, and then Twitter caves to their demands. They figure out, oh, this will work. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. And you can see that process playing out in countless news stories over the last few years. This is kind of how the Steele dossier release worked. Adam Schiff uses this model constantly. He goes out and states things as fact and says that you should believe him based on the fact that he's on the Intel committee, even though he can't disclose the specific Intel. But then the media accepts it as fact, pushes it out everywhere. It becomes widely accepted as fact by the broader American public. And everyone simply proceeds as if the things Adam Schiff is saying are automatically true. Twitter soon settled on its future posture. In public, it removed content, quote, at our sole discretion. Privately, they would off board anything, quote, identified by the U.S. intelligence community as a state sponsored entity conducting cyber operations. And Taibi shares an excerpt external offboarding policy. Your use of Twitter services is subject to Twitter's ad policies available at and they give a link, the Twitter rules available at another link at the Twitter terms of service available at another link. Any other agreements you have with Twitter and your and our legal obligations. If we suspect that an ad is in violation of our rights, agreements or policies, we may stop the ad from running in some cases, including but not limited to multiple or severe violations of our rights and policies. Or if you engage or are suspected as engaging in any unlawful activity on our service, as we determine in our sole discretion, we will suspend or terminate your account. Internal guidance. Any user identified by the U.S. intelligence community as a state-sponsored entity conducting cyber operations against targets associated with U.S. or other elections, or an entity associated with such operations, 
shall not be allowed to advertise on Twitter. They're casting a pretty wide net there and stating pretty clearly that they're willing to do the bidding of the intelligence community. Twitter let the USIC into its moderation process. It would not leave. Wrote Crowell in an email to the company's leaders, we will not be reverting to the status quo. So they have entered a new normal. Thus ends Twitter files number 11. Let's go to Twitter files number 12. This is also by Matt Taibbi. Twitter and the FBI belly button. And there is a very strange and gross cartoon of a man's fat, hairy belly with a belly button ring with a little Twitter bird hanging off the belly button ring. Don't look at it. It's not worth it. It's not offensive, really. It's fine. It's not worth it. You don't want to see it, is what I'm saying. By 2020, Twitter was struggling with the problem of public and private agencies bypassing them and going straight to the media with lists of suspect accounts. In February 2020, as COVID broke out, the Global Engagement Center, a fledgling analytic slash intelligence arm of the State Department, went to the media with a report called Russian Disinformation Apparatus Taking Advantage of Coronavirus Concerns. So this is a government agency, an arm of the State Department, going to media to report this. And here is the excerpt from that report. The Global Engagement Center, through coordination with a trusted partner, tracked the global activity of Russian state-linked false personas and proxies, which often push disinformation and propaganda. Coronavirus has been a top subject for these accounts since 24 January. The coronavirus as a topic is being propagated by these Russia-linked accounts in English, Spanish, Italian, German, and French, indicating that this disinformation campaign is intended for a global audience. These same Russia-linked accounts have previously been tracked by the GEC because of their involvement in the Chilean protests. The Yellow Jacket protests in France, that's the Gilets Jaunes, the conflict in Syria and other geopolitical events. So Russia, 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 even on COVID. The GEC flagged accounts as Russian personas and proxies based on criteria like describing the coronavirus as an engineered bioweapon, blaming, quote, research conducted at the Wuhan Institute and, quote, attributing the appearance of the virus to the CIA. Now, those are not conspiracy theories. The coronavirus was, in fact, engineered as a bioweapon, partly due to research conducted at the Wuhan Institute, funded, of course, in part by the United States of America and the deep state faction within it, specifically the NIH and the NIAID run by Francis Collins and the Nazi doctor himself, Anthony Fauci, attributing appearance of the virus to the CIA. Now, that is interesting. Why were they so concerned about this claim? Surely no one would ever believe it. There would never be evidence to appear in the world that the CIA would ever do such a thing. I mean, except for the fact that they uh, assassinated John F. Kennedy Jr. Whoops. State also flagged accounts that retweeted news that Twitter banned the popular U.S. outlet Zero Hedge, claiming the episode, quote, 
led to another flurry of disinformation narratives. Zero Hedge had done reports speculating that the virus had lab origin. And this is from February 14th, 2020. Zero Hedge, way ahead of the game. The GEC, again, that's the Global Engagement Center, part of the State Department, was worried about sinophobia, which is fear of the Chinese. And here's what they cited from Zero Hedge. This is what they wrote. Finally, the suspension of the Zero Hedge Twitter account led to another flurry of disinformation narratives. Zero Hedge's most recent post received high engagement, 10,999 retweets and 14,300 likes and focused on supposedly organic matter burning in Wuhan as judged by increased levels of sulfur dioxide. This is the tweet cited in the GEC report. And this is just an example from a random account. It says Zero Hedge banned from Twitter after BuzzFeed accuses it of coronavirus conspiracy and doxing a Chinese scientist. Zero Hedge should join Russian social media site VK. There's no NATO propaganda arm Atlantic Council acting as Orwellian Ministry of Truth. And congratulations, crazy random account with emojis in your name. Who in the world do you think runs the Ministry of Truth? The GEC still led directly to news stories like the AFP's headline, Russia-linked disinformation campaign led to coronavirus alarm, U.S. says, and a Politico story about how Russian, Chinese, Iranian disinformation narratives echo one another. You haven't made a Russia attribution in some time. When Clemson's media forensics hub complained Twitter hadn't made a Russian attribution in some time, trust and safety chief Yoel Roth said it was, quote, revelatory of their motives. Here's the excerpt. They did ask about our findings regarding the latest list of accounts they shared with NBC, and I relayed that we did see some inauthentic behaviors, but that we are unable to attribute the accounts to the IRA. They noted that we haven't made an attribution to Russia in some time and asked if there is any information they could provide to help us make those links. I offered that if it would be helpful in the future to arrange an analytical exchange ahead of any conclusions they release, we would be open to doing so. So years later, they are still pushing Twitter to find, which in this context basically means create instances of Russian interference that would support the narrative that they and the media have been trading back and forth. And I mentioned this a bit yesterday in the discussion about Cash Patel's deposition with the J6 committee. The media and the politicians are both supplying the same narrative that comes down to them from the authoritative source, and they're each trying to support one another's position. The media supports the politicians, the politicians support the media. And in that interaction, they're ultimately just supporting the central narrative as handed down by the authoritative source. We're happy to work directly with you on this instead of NBC. Roth tried in vain to convince outside researchers like the Clemson lab to check with them before pushing stories about foreign interference to the media. 
Roth writes, when redacted left, I started interfacing directly with the Clemson folks in the hopes of getting them to stop going down this path of running to press with claims of IRA activity. Obviously, I was unsuccessful as we've been unsuccessful with them for years now. So Twitter is saying we don't have the information you want, and they're still going out and running these media stories anyway. Happy for whoever to manage this, but I do think direct outreach to them to say something like, hey, we heard from a reporter that you say you found the IRA. As we've said a bunch of times, we're still happy to work directly with you on this instead of via NBC would be justified. Twitter was also trying to reduce the number of agencies with access to Roth. If these folks are like the House Homeland Committee and DHS, once we give them a direct contact with Yoel, they will want to come back to him again and again, said policy director Carlos Mangi. When the State Department and GEC, remember this was 2020 during the Trump administration, wanted to publicize a list of 5,500 accounts it claimed would, quote, amplify Chinese propaganda and disinformation about COVID, Twitter analysts were beside themselves. The GEC report appeared based on DHS data circulated earlier that week and included accounts that followed, quote, two or more Chinese diplomatic accounts. They reportedly ended up with a list of nearly 250,000 names and included Canadian officials and a CNN account. So any account that followed two or more Chinese diplomatic accounts, that's all it took to be included on this list. And it included a CNN account and Canadian officials. And now Canadian officials following Chinese diplomatic accounts actually does make sense to be included on these lists because Canada is quite infiltrated by the Chinese Communist Party. Hard to deny that, isn't it, Canada? Roth saw GEC's move as an attempt by the GEC to use intel from other agencies to, quote, insert themselves, end quote, into the content moderation club that included Twitter, Facebook, the FBI, DHS, and others. Here is Roth's email. Thanks, all. Catching up on email today, three high-level thoughts. GEC's blitz on these issues is at least in part an attempt to insert themselves into the conversations we've had with DHS, FBI, ODNI, and others. So the State Department felt left out, considering that DHS, the FBI, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence all had better access than they did. Per Facebook, they've explicitly requested to participate in those conversations. Obviously, state is a significant voice and one we don't want to neglect. But I do want us to continue to maintain a distinction between the highly trusted, valued relationships we've built over years with entities with considerable expertise and authority in these domains and other parts of the U.S. government that may engage on these questions from time to time, sometimes in more political ways than others. So essentially, Twitter and the executives at Twitter already trust their relationships with the FBI, 
the DHS, the ODNI, and others, and don't want to include this new group because they don't know exactly what's going on in there. And it's worth just mentioning that Mike Pompeo was leading the State Department at this time as Secretary of State. The GEC was soon agreeing to loop in Twitter before going public, but they were using a technique that had boxed Twitter in before. Quote, the delta between when they share material and when they go to press continues to be problematic, end quote, wrote one comms official. And this at this point is standard media practice, where in the past they used to seek out comment and seek out confirmation before running a story. Now they basically do it right before they run the story, assuming that no one will respond in time, but it still gives them the option of writing into their article. We reached out to Twitter for comment, but have not heard back. The episode led to a rare public disagreement between Twitter and state officials. Taibi includes two headlines. This one from CNN. Twitter disputes State Department claims China coordinated coronavirus disinformation accounts. And from U.S. News, State Department, China working with Russia to spread coronavirus information. When the FBI informed Twitter the GEC wanted to be included in the regular quote unquote industry call between companies like Twitter and Facebook and the DHS and FBI, Twitter leaders balked at first. The excerpted email reads, I think it makes sense to push back on GEC participation in this forum. Thanks. So Twitter doesn't want this part of the State Department involved in their little circle. Twitter, Facebook, DHS, FBI, ODNI. They're not sure if they can trust this group that's part of the State Department. And you have to wonder if that's because they're concerned about another party knowing exactly what's going on with their little trusted group. Facebook, Google, and Twitter executives were united in opposition to GEC's inclusion with ostensible reasons, including the GEC's mandate for offensive IO to promote American interests. They also cite the relative lack of discretion and caution from senior GEC leadership in sharing reports and analysis based on shaky methodology and a limited track record of successful collaboration with industry. And if those reasons sound underwhelming to you, I would agree with you. They also wrote, especially as the election heats up in the coming months, introducing an actor like GEC into what has to date been a stable and relatively, in parentheses, trusted group of practitioners and experts poses major risks and could undermine a channel of significant importance to our election security efforts. Are they saying that the GEC has been infiltrated by China or Russia or Iran? Some foreign adversary doesn't seem to be what they're saying. That would be an awfully strange claim for them to make, especially when they have all been infiltrated for sure, or at least influenced by foreign adversaries, most notably the global governing adversaries. It's really starting to sound like they did not want members of another government agency 
having access, being privy to the information and conversations they were having. And why are they concerned about that? Unless they believed that the GEC was compromised and was going to leak these conversations to our foreign adversaries or something, it doesn't make sense that they would be worried that this information would be possessed by another government agency unless they weren't doing the right thing. A deeper reason was a perception that unlike the DHS and FBI, which were quote unquote apolitical, as Roth put it, the GEC was quote political which in Twitterese appeared to be partisan code. I think they thought the FBI was less Trumpy, is how one former DOD official put it. So the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, the FBI, the DHS, and the ODNI all had their little group that would discuss censorship and foreign interference and other subjects. They were controlling it to some degree. The social media companies, The big data companies, which is another thing we always have to keep in mind. This is not just about the front end, which is about public speech and censorship and quote unquote disinformation. It's also about the back end. It's also about who controls all that data and who has access to all that data. So we have government agencies under Donald Trump that we know were looking to undermine the Trump administration and did for the four years he was in office. They were involved with this other part of the censorship apparatus. They don't want the GEC in there because they're concerned that the State Department is more political somehow than the FBI. The FBI, we can now see, is an arm of partisan politics for the regime. And of course, bipartisan, I mean, actually, that was a happy accident. Bipartisan. It's for the uniparty. They were concerned this new agency would be less Trumpy. So they either wouldn't get to do what they wanted or someone would be in there knowing what they're doing who might not approve. After spending years rolling over for Democratic Party requests for action on quote unquote Russia linked accounts, Twitter was suddenly playing tough. Why? Because as Roth put it, it would pose major risks to bring the GEC in, especially as the election heats up. When senior lawyer Stacia Cardeal tried to argue against the GEC's inclusion to the FBI, the words resonated, quote unquote, with Elvis, not Laura, i.e. with Elvis Chan, not Foreign Influence Task Force Unit Chief Laura Demlo. Here is the email from Stacia Cardeal. I just spoke to the FBI regarding the upcoming sunlight disclosures. Our conversation did not deviate from the information contained in the forthcoming sunlight blog. The FBI raised that on today's monthly government hyphen industry call. So government talking to industry, that's the agencies talking to the big tech companies, and they have a monthly call. They are going to raise, including the GEC Going forward, I previewed to them that they will find resistance to adding the GEC. I talked through the issues we have encountered and also raised that the GEC slash State Department is focused outside of the U.S. and that we should deal with U.S. elections separately. That resonated with Elvis, not Laura. 
State also flagged that with the Google disclosure of Chinese APT targeting campaigns, we may receive outreach from other U.S. government agencies. We should just deflect and say we are working closely with the FBI on these matters. So they want exclusive access within their agencies to the legacy big tech companies and do not want any interference or disclosure to outside agencies that they deem untrusted. Roth reached out to Chan with concerns about letting the quote unquote press happy GEC in, expressing hope they could keep the quote unquote circle of trust small. So the press happy GEC, they don't want them involved. They go to the press apparently with stories that are not approved of by this group of people, including, of course, the FBI, DHS, and ODNI. They never have a problem with their side of the narrative hitting the media because it helps them. They're all in a project together. Their project is partisan. They are pushing the uniparty forward. They are pushing the agenda of the regime forward. They don't want some other agency going out to the press and in any way countering their narrative agenda. So they see this part of the State Department, this agency under the State Department, as being in opposition to their agenda. State, NSA, and CIA, Chen reassured him it would be a one-way channel, and State slash GEC, NSA, and CIA have expressed interest in being allowed on in listen mode only. So they're like, we don't have to contribute. We just want to hear what's going on. We can give you everything we're seeing from the FBI and USIC agencies, Chan explained, but the DHS agency, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, quote, will know what's going on in each state, end quote. He went on to ask if industry could, quote, rely on the FBI to be the belly button of the USG. They eventually settled on an industry call via signal. In an impressive display of operational security, Chan circulated private numbers of each company's chief moderation officer in a word doc marked signal phone numbers, subject lined list of numbers. And it's funny that Taibi mentions the operational security here. You wouldn't expect someone to just circulate a list of each company's chief moderation officers, unless, I guess, if you're already part of some trusted circle. Twitter was taking requests from every conceivable government body, beginning with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which seemed to need reassurance Twitter was taking FBI direction. Execs rushed to tell Team SSCI they zapped five accounts on an FBI tip. So the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, members of that committee, or I suppose their staffers, wanted to make sure that Twitter was following direction from the FBI. Requests arrived and were escalated from all over Twitter, from Treasury, the NSA, virtually every state, the HHS, from the FBI and the DHS and more. They also received an astonishing variety of requests from officials asking for individuals they didn't like to be banned. Here, the Office for Democrat 
and House Intel Committee Chief Adam Schiff asks Twitter to ban journalist Paul Sperry. Now, this is an actual revelation on some level. A lot of people have known that politicians, government agencies were working with tech companies to stifle free speech. This is a sitting congressman, a congressional leader, member of the January 6th committee, member of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, asking specifically to ban the journalist Paul Sperry from Twitter. And here is the list of requests from Adam Schiff's office and the response from Twitter. Remove any and all content about Mr. Misko and other committee staff from its service to include quotes, retweets, and reactions to that content. Twitter responds, no, this isn't feasible. We don't do this. Schiff's office was complaining to Twitter about what they said was harassment from QAnon conspiracists against one of their staffers. So that is what they're making requests over. They're saying you have to do all this censorship because one of our staffers is getting harassed by QAnons. And what does that mean? Well, that means people figured out what it is that Adam Schiff really does, and they were contacting his office about it. That is harassment in their view from QAnons. Suspend the many accounts, including at Greg Rubini and at Paul Sperry, which have repeatedly promoted false QAnon conspiracies and harassed a redacted name. Twitter responds, we'll review these accounts again, but I believe redacted mentioned only one actually qualified for suspension. And Paul Sperry isn't a nobody. He is a very good investigative journalist. He writes for Real Clear Investigations, but he's also written for the New York Post, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. He's a pretty well-known media figure. And speaking of Paul Sperry, he actually had a very interesting tweet today. He wrote on Twitter, developing. I'm told a major investigative story by a doyen of Washington Press Corps is set to drop next week, exposing mainstream media collusion in Russiagate hoax. Insider account will name names, prominent DC reporters, Revelations include secret New York Times meetings with McCabe and a hotline with Peter Strzok. That will be fantastic. Unless, of course, it is just another limited hangout and then it'll be whatever, except Fox News will definitely freak out. Back to the email from Adam Schiff's office and the Twitter responses. Suppress any and all search results about redacted and other committee staff. Twitter responds, no, we don't do this. If it is related to QAnon, it should already be deamplified. See that they have an anti-QAnon policy. Stop the spread of future misinformation on Twitter about redacted and other committee staff who are not public figures and who were not central actors in the impeachment inquiry or the 2020 presidential election. No, we don't have a general misinformation policy. Adam Schiff's office wanted anyone removed and their accounts deamplified. They wanted the spread of information halted if they were tweeting about 
Adam Schiff's staff members. So now tweeting about a congressman's staff is information worth violating the First Amendment for, according to shifty Adam Schiff. Label and reduce the visibility of any content about redacted that Twitter does not remove for the reasons cited above their response. No, we don't do this. So Adam Schiff's requests were too much for even the communists at Twitter. Even Twitter declined to honor Schiff's request at the time. Sperry was later suspended. However, Twitter honored almost everyone else's requests, even those from GEC, including a decision to ban accounts like at rebel protests and at bricks media because GEC identified them as GRU controlled and linked to the Russian government. The GEC requests were what a former CIA staffer working at Twitter was referring to when he said our window on that is closing, meaning that. The days when Twitter could say no to serious requests were over. So basically, hey, if you don't do it, they're going to force you to do it. So you just got to go ahead and do it. They're going to take control of everything because that's what they need. They can't survive. The narrative can't survive. The agenda can't survive without you censoring whatever they want you to censor. And also, especially QAnon. Here is that quote in context from the email addressed to, among others, Yoel Roth. Due to a lack of technical evidence on our end, I've generally left it be waiting for more evidence. I think our window on that is closing, given that government partners are becoming more aggressive on attribution and reporting on it. I'm going to go ahead with suspension and marking the domain as unsafe. Remember the 2017 internal guidance in which Twitter decided to remove any user, quote, identified by the U.S. intelligence community, end quote, as a state-sponsored entity committing cyber operations. By 2020, such identifications came in bulk. USIC requests often simply began, quote, we assess, end quote, and then provided lists, sometimes in separate Excel docs they believed were connected to Russia's Internet Research Agency, the IRA, and committing cyber ops from Africa to South America to the U.S. One brief report sent right after Russia's invasion of Ukraine early last year flagged major Russian outlets like Vedomosti and Gazeta.ru. Note the language about state actors fits Twitter's internal guidance. And he's taking note of that, obviously, so that they can report these accounts are doing something that your guidance says they can't do. That is our assessment of what these accounts are doing. Fits perfectly. So go ahead and take care of that now. They were even warned about publicity surrounding a book by former Ukraine prosecutor Victor Shokin, who alleged, quote, corruption by the U.S. government, end quote, specifically Joe Biden is missing now, and that is I'm desperately concerned about the backsliding on the part of uh, uh, Kiev in terms of corruption. They made, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one concrete example. I, I, I was, not I, I, but it just happened to be that was the assignment I got. I, I, I got all the good ones. Uh, uh, 
and uh, so I got Ukraine. And uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours." If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. And we all remember that. Joe Biden got the Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, fired while he was investigating Hunter Biden's deal with Burisma by threatening to withhold U.S. aid. Has that been fact-checked? Of course it is. Guess what the fact-check says was the reason for the firing. Oh, it's because Victor Shokin was just too corrupt and Joe Biden was actually helping rid the world of corruption. And it also just so happened that Victor Shokin was actually investigating Hunter Biden and Burisma. It's just that that's not, that's not the, the reason that, uh, that Joe Biden had him fired. You see, it was because um, Shokin was the corrupt one. You got it? Shokin was corrupt, not Joe Biden. By the weeks before the election in 2020, Twitter was so confused by the various streams of incoming requests, staffers had to ask the FBI which was which. I apologize in advance for your workload. Requests poured in from FBI offices all over the country, day after day, hour after hour. If Twitter didn't act quickly, questions came. Was action taken? Any movement? Wrote senior attorney Stacia Cardeal. My inbox is really effed up at this point. It all led to the situation described by Michael Schellenberger two weeks ago, in which Twitter was paid $3 million $415,323, essentially for being an overwhelmed subcontractor. Twitter wasn't just paid. For the amount of work they did for government, they were underpaid. Thus concludes Twitter files drop number 12. And hopefully soon we will get to the really explosive stuff. There are little important nuggets in all of these that are at least new details on old information or new details that kind of further illustrate narratives and stories we're already familiar with. But to people who have paid attention to these issues, they're not bombshells. We have to hope that the public at large is reading these and becoming aware of what these actually do detail about our government's involvement in censorship and other forms of manipulation with these big tech companies in hopes that these narratives, the understanding that the Hunter Biden laptop is real, that there was collusion between the government and the tech companies to censor Americans in violation of the First Amendment, and that they were doing this around important events that went the regime's way, 
coronavirus, the election, the laptop, etc. These are all things that we've known for a long time, but the general public has ignored or denied in some way. If nothing else, these stories will at least cement the reality of all this stuff in the public mind when we begin to see, hopefully, investigations coming out of this Congress, if they ever get a speaker. And it is a mystery as to when that'll happen, because they are now currently concluding the sixth round of votes, and they still do not have enough votes to make Kevin McCarthy the leader. It looks like the numbers have been the same again and again today. 20 votes for Byron Donalds and Victoria Sparts voting present. We'll see if that's what she does at the end of this sixth round. And hey, maybe they'll keep it going all day and all night as they threatened to yesterday, but I kind of doubt it. I will be sure to update that tomorrow. I will be back tomorrow. At the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network, I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!